0: Welcome to Down to Zero, a series where we speak to game-changing entrepreneurs, investors, and experts on how to build a successful climate tech company.
1: We're your hosts, Shemise Mohinani and Florian Dahlhausen. Over the last few years, climate change got personal as people felt the impact of extreme weather events in their daily lives. But over a decade ago, back in 2011, when Impossible Foods was founded, Most people hadn't heard of climate change or didn't care much about it. They definitely were not making decisions about what to eat based on what they thought was good for the earth. So, how do you develop a go-to-market strategy for a market that doesn't exist yet? And how do you drive change in consumer behavior? And then, as Impossible did, how do you scale to a global consumer brand with a climate mission?
0: Today we welcome Nick Haler on the pod to answer these questions. Nick teamed up with Stanford professor Pat Brown as his business partner and first employee at Impossible Foods back in 2011, a month before they kicked off the company. He eventually ran their retail and international expansion strategies all the way to when Impossible was 800 people large across 10 countries. Nick, we're so excited to welcome you to Down to Zero today.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to talk with you
1: yeah for sure so to start with nick tell us about your path to impossible and what inspired you to join in the early stages
2: yeah happy to share um i've been in food and agriculture most of my life i grew up in minnesota on a small family dairy farm and i took a lot of experiences away from that like two of the big ones being one is like a small family dairy farm is a form of entrepreneurship So like all my brothers and sisters, we all have our own companies and businesses of some sort. I think that's just kind of in my blood. And so I always wanted to start a business. And two is like, as a dairy farmer, we're outside working with the animals out on the land 365 days of the year. So in high school, I got really interested in sustainability, um, got deep into technology, started thinking about renewable energy. And it's like, oh, we're going to run out of coal and oil and all this stuff. Anyway, we need better solutions. Like how are we going to go from here? before I was even really thinking about climate, it was more of like a just general sustainability of resources perspective. And so that led me to study engineering and everything I did in my chemical engineering research was on like clean, sustainable systems, like exhaust systems, biofuels, refineries, batteries, but I had absolutely no idea what I would do with that coming out of it, like a small farm town kid at a big state school. And so then I ended up working at General Mills for four years, designing products and manufacturing systems, which taught me how businesses commercialize products from idea, work with a consumer, build a product and make it at scale. And my job was now to make it at scale. And I kind of saw that innovation project process, but I always wanted to do something more in sustainability. I like, I got to go do something else. I want to get into sustainability. And so that was brought me to Stanford. I did the MBA MS there, all focused on starting companies. I was like, I'm done with food. I'm done with agriculture. I'm going back. I'm getting into a real energy. That's what I want to do. And so I did absolutely nothing in food when I was in business school. And so I worked in solar energy at a company called Cogenera, got deep kind of into the venture landscape, because that's where a lot of the ideas sat of things that I wanted to work at. Through that process, I met Pat Brown, who had the idea for Impossible. We hit it off, and it was like, wow, this is so different than anything I'd ever heard in food and agriculture before. And like the people like the cut from an engineering perspective makes a ton of sense. We use animals at such a scale, and animals are so inefficient at taking resources and converting them to meat that we want to eat. If we get rid of the animal, produce the products directly... We could feed the world on, you know, less than 10% of the land that we use today for agriculture It's like, that's so powerful from a climate perspective. And then you can use that land to take carbon with trees and all these other benefits that you could do as well. And so it was a really worthwhile mission. Same time, I grew up on a dairy farm at a, and I was like, I ate meat and dairy all the time at that point. And I never thought about food that way. And I remember talking to my brother, who was still like, he's like the farmer at heart. And he was like, what do you think of that? I was like, you know what? This is great. You know, our job as farmers is to produce good food for people affordably. And that's getting harder and harder to do. And so this is in some ways kind of fighting against that and say, hey, we're going to produce food a better way using plants and the current system that we've scaled up. And so I joined from there. It was kind of like the rest is history, I guess.
1: Awesome. Uh, That's a super cool story of connecting the dots looking backward. No matter how you try to run away from food and egg, it always caught up to you. What did the plant and plant-based and meat market look like back then? What did Impossible look like in the context of that market?
2: Yeah, early days, I remember going to Expo West. It's like a natural food like show in, um, in Orange County. And I was like, I got to try all the different products out there. Because like I said, I at this point, I probably eat meat and dairy foods pretty much every meal. And I think like, I had to try all the plant-based burgers, all the cheeses and all this. And I got done. I was like, I just need a burger. It's like The products were so bad <laughs> as a meat eater. And I think the reality was a lot of them were made for the vegetarian vegan community who are making that choice of eating there so it's more for health. It's not necessarily to replicate that flavor, that experience that you'd get from a typical animal based product. And so as out of this, so like, okay, we have a ways to go. Um, but there's clearly an opportunity too, because these are some decent sized like growing businesses and the products from a consumer perspective as a you know, a carnivore at that point, it's like they didn't even come close to meeting what my requirements would be. And so there are a bunch of companies out there doing this, but nothing in the realm that Impossible is doing. But it did also show us that we need to take a different approach. If we take the standard like CPG consumer packaged good, like development approach, we're going to end up with a better veggie burger. And what we need to do is we need to outperform beef. We need to outcompete it. So better flavor, better texture, like all the properties that you get, then it becomes healthier, but it gets more sustainable. And as you scale more affordable, but you have to have the taste and the performance. Number one. And then from there, you can really build a scalable business.
1: We'll get to your strategy and approach in a second, but can you share with us a memorable moment from the early days of the company?
2: Ooh, moment. I was like, moment is a tough one. Let me think about that. Uh, I'll go with when we first started. So the first two years were all basic science to understand what actually makes meat, fish, and dairy foods what they are, and then find better ways in the plant-based world to do this. And that entailed anything from... All right, so we need some new ingredients we need plant-based ingredients what's out there and i remember talking to pat on this he's like all right so what do we need what do you want to start with he's like well give me every single plant-based ingredient in the world and i was like um any more specificity to that he's like no and that was like a big part of my job was to take that type of vision because he's such an amazing visionary that says you know animals we shouldn't use them in the food system they're too inefficient we need to find a way to do this but he'd also give you the the team the freedom to figure out how And a lot of my job is to take that broad kind of scope and now focus it in a way that we could actually execute that and i remember finding this company that had like all these different like it was a reseller and then so it had like hundreds of maybe a couple hundred different like oils and i said give me one of everything and they're like uh what do you mean <laughs> and then like one of my employees a few years later was at their booth at a trade show and they're like oh yeah you're that company <laughs> we had like a reputation within there and you kind of fast forward and then about two years in we started doing prototyping and so the first two years were really just basic science and we started doing prototyping and the first products were pretty rough and i think uh, yeah the descriptions are not something that people would definitely choose to eat but within probably three to six months we could put it against meat and you could say it's like okay it's not there yet but it's getting closer in the ballpark and i think probably 12 months after we started prototyping you put it head on head with consumers in a blind taste test and they'd see this it meat it's not preferred um, but it was in the category and those are some of the really big moments that you kind of get in the early stage of like, hey, we're on the right path. We've made some big discoveries on the science side that can enable us to build stuff that no one's ever done before. And you could see the innovation cycle moving so quickly that we are catching up to the
0: animal counterpart. That's really cool. That kind of this idea, taking a big vision and trying to make it actionable, whether that means ordering everything uh, once or doing something else. And I would love to go deeper into that. So you have these two years of basic science. You have a product that's starting to catch up. Let's look a bit at the go-to-market strategy. Back then, I guess you didn't really have anything. You have this product. How did you think about turning this big vision of, let's make this a a global product into something actionable in the first steps of the go-to-market strategy?
2: Yeah, we had a lot of ideas. Um, One thing we realized very early is you have to do something different. If we end up doing the same thing that all other products be, we're just going to kind of get grouped into the same category. And so the vast majority of food products, like you go to Expo West, it's like a lot of the new products coming to market and it's really retail focused. And so we looked at that and okay, if we launch, you know, impossible in retailer X, Y, or Z, um, you're going to almost certainly be put in the vegan ghetto with all the other vegan products. And we're like, you know, but our consumer, the ones that we have to hit are the the avid meat lovers. That's what we have to hit. That's what we have to convert over. And we even like ban the words vegetarian and vegan, kind of like not totally, but kind of jokingly internally because that's not our consumer we have to hit mediator to drive a more sustainable food system so we look at that as you know i don't think that's the right path for us to go uh, we need to kind of control our story and build the story more and we're also going to be low on volume right away it's like we're building this new technology and we're not going to have like a huge um you know production site right running right away and so we thought about how we can use that most effectively uh, we did think about there's different ways you could do it as like Um, like a filler, an additive. And it's like, if you take meat and now 10% of it is all plant-based, that's a huge, huge impact environmentally. But you don't control the story. You don't control the message. And at this point, you look at the consumers and you do a consumer study and say, why would you buy a plant-based meat? And people would be like, well, it's gonna taste good. That's number one. No matter what in food, it has to taste good. And then you get to nutrition, uh, you get to cost, and then you get to like animal welfare. is kind of say maybe halfway down the list and like number 15 at the bottom is sustainability people were not making choices based off of sustainability. And we knew we needed to change that story. And so then we needed to one, build credibility, two, start changing the story. And you know, three, use a small amount of volume for a big impact. And so that led us to look at them different routes and we're like, you know what, we should start with the, the influencers in the meat world. And who is that? It's the chefs, like the meat chefs. It's like, who are the most influential meat chefs? We kind of scanned the country, looked at them, and you look at New York, and like the meat shop in New York is David Chang. He's been picketed by PETA. He said, he's never going to serve a vegetarian product on his menu at this point. It's like, we got to get that person <laughs> and you start looking at it and you start talking to some of the, the chefs early on, you get some feedback and then you do a pitch with him and he was blown away and he ended up being our launch chef, which sends a message from day one that this is not a veggie burger. This is meat made from plants, um, for meat eaters. And so then from there, we kind of curated the first, like, you know, couple dozen restaurants with this type of story where everywhere we went, it was really a, it was a moment. There's a media moment, there's a company moment, and it really kind of lured the consumer in on a journey with us. So we could bring them on as we scaled up. And then over time, you start uh, you know, bringing in you know, bigger bigger customers, bigger clients, and
0: stuff like that as you scale. So you, you talked about targeting chefs to control the story early on. Was there also a consideration around picking a certain target demographic or a certain target market? Or was your choice to go this way with early go-to-market really mainly around credibility, controlling the story and serving low volumes, but making that splash. It's actually, it's interesting. So from a control on the story, that's probably not the way you would go. Because when you're working with like
2: a very influential chef, they're going to say whatever they want at the end of the day. Right. And so this is where a lot of times you go to retail because you can do much more control of your product and your brand and stuff. Like when you go to food service, you do, you are giving away some of that control. Um, But for us, what it really does, is build the credibility and it gave us platforms to tell stories. And then as you tell the stories, you go from there.
1: Yeah. And how would you rate yourself or the team on the success of that initial go to market approach with chefs and celebrities?
2: You know, looking back at it, um, some of what we, I mean, we were doing a lot of strategy. we trying to figure out what we the right place to do. And we had this and then the team executed amazingly. And I don't know if I, we hadn't heard of a food brand going this way to really build a brand through food service before. And I think every little piece of it kind of kind of built on top of each other so like one of the things we ended up doing is uh we used like the flags with like impossibles like logo on it and so every time somebody would like order impossible burger they get this like toothpick with a flag on it and then that was all over social media and you look at all the forward launches now everybody does it and it's like oh that's cool it's like because it was a way that you could like tell your brand in a food service setting because typically in a food service setting you're not going to have that ability to have your brand show up whether it be on the menu and then honestly here with the product you could put wraps around it and things like this and so like there were so many different branding opportunities that really hadn't been used very much before and then we did have some time so we did have about a year essentially where we can really curate it this way and so that kind of enabled us to kind of create the pace and so if we wanted to try to do like these big launches with you know hundreds and hundreds of stores right away our team wouldn't have been ready for that the company wasn't ready for it and so that first year gave us the time to start getting the company operations in place as well as we learned how to sell, how to deliver, how to distribute how to support the brand, how to do the comms kind of behind it. And it, it it worked extremely well. So from a rating perspective, it's like to like what I saw, like those early years uh, went really, really well. And that is you've kind of fast forward and the first production site goes on, then you got to start scaling pretty quickly. And I think we queued up a lot of that uh, from those early days of success.
0: You kind of mentioned this idea of the company would have not been ready for for a bigger, bigger momentum at that point what were the metrics or characteristics of the company that you looked at to make that call that you don't want to go big, but that you really want to focus and go small in the beginning? And when did you know to change? You never know. So the first answer to that is you never know really when you need to change, but you
2: kind of do the best that you can with the information that you have at hand. You no, know, for us, I mean, like a, you kind of go to the founding story, the first two years and the first 50 employees were pretty much all scientists. And as you're kind of ramping up, and then you start building the product development team, which is more of applied science, and then you get the engineering team, which is now making that science kind of um, into a commercially um, viable process and be able to deliver the products. Then you start building the business teams. And so we kind of went that way. So we, we start with such a fundamental, like scientifically discovery-oriented culture and team. And then you it takes time to transfer that into a commercial orientation. And so I think that's part of it. And then, you know, we haven't produced food before. And so you're going into this, where we're a new company that hasn't produced anything and delivered it to a consumer. We've done a lot of research and had a lot of learnings. Uh, we pulled a lot of really good people in who have done this before. Um, but you do need to prove it. And so if you want to say you want to work with like a big customer that has thousands of doors and you haven't sold food before number one, they're not going to take that risk. So we need to build our credibility up as well. Um, not just with the consumer and the brand and the product quality and really changing that, Hey, you can make meat for plants not a veggie burger we also had to build our credibility with the customer base that we're going to deliver and so i think that's the what a lot of companies will get this wrong is we're going to go from zero to 100 right away when we launch um there's so many different factors that you have to figure out as a company besides the market being ready to accept you too
1: i'd love to pull on the thread a little bit uh with this idea of doing things that your company hasn't uh, done before changing the culture of the company internally in the context of that, were there any unexpected challenges in go to market or externally in changing customer behavior? And how did you overcome those challenges? Um,
2: you know, from the go to market perspective, definitely a lot of challenges. Uh, we went from if you go to their go to market story, it was like the first year was essentially a seeding. And so we're really, you know, handpicking restaurants, got up to about 30 restaurants and it was like, you know, very good meat oriented restaurants to tell the story. And then some of the more better burger chains, which you can, you know, get into five of them, then you can scale to 50 once you have your production. So you're kind of like pre selling and doing like a, like a pilot. So that once you do add your production online, you can go pretty quickly. Now, going from that, when you go from small production to, hey, now we have a facility. Now I can produce, a thousand the X, what we could produce before. Let's fill that right away. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> and so then it takes a ramp. Through there, like I said, you're building the customer's trust. You're building the supply chain along with the same thing. You have to build up your operational capability, and so it does take time to build that sales ramp. No matter what you're doing in anything from like a physical goods you're delivering a product type business, uh, where tech is like we're in the valley, and it, with the valley, it's like when you're scaling tech, you can scale. It's it's you know I'm a hard tech person. You know, the soft tech like view of my point is like yeah, it's a lot easier to do the soft tech. You kind of add more servers and you add more all that other stuff. For us, it's like you got to add entire supply chains, manufacturing equipment and teams to support that and deliver the products, make sure the quality is good and you don't have issues with like spoilage and all this other stuff. There's so many different failure mechanisms that you have to really think about. And I think that's where you're going when you're going from the 30 restaurants to 3,000 and 30,000 and 100,000. They're all massive jumps in the complexity of what you have to do. And so you have to be that much more efficient at what you do. So in the early days, when you have 30 restaurants, you can be really hands on. And we were, we were lucky in the standpoint that we were able to raise enough capital where we had the resources to be really hands-on and almost like white glove service but now you spend to a thousand and three thousand on you have to have systems that can handle it because you can't be that way so you have to change the operations culture to go from okay if it's a small customer we have to handle it very differently than if it's a five thousand unit customer and that takes and when you're a, when you're a culture that really wants to succeed in everything you do it's like a lot of really high achievers why did something go and saying, okay, we're going to be really light touch with all those customers now. That were in a lot of our early launch customers too. It's hard to do. And when you go from a research culture to a commercial culture, it's also a big shift, and it's hard to make that shift and kind of go and go from research. You can always do better. You can always learn more and more and more. At a certain point of time, you say, stop the learning, lock it in, we're shipping. And so it takes leaderships like kind of like kind of strength essentially to push that through. And then you kind of have to start batching. And so instead of being like daily iterations that you do from the final product, you're going to have like iterations that, you know, you pile up over a year. You have new
0: versions coming out, And so that does change like kind of the commercial culture of the company too. There's a lot of nuggets in there that I think don't get really told in the traditional Silicon Valley software company building stories or podcasts. So I'd love to tee up this question. What are the lessons that really from this first phase of the company that you think other entrepreneurs who might be like you interested in the more hard tech companies, whether it's consumer hard tech with a climate focus or really deep tech, uh, what are the lessons that they can take away that might be helpful for building their companies?
2: Yeah, I think from maybe I'll start one on overall. From an overall perspective, I mean, we're in climate, we're very mission-driven people. And so for Impossible, Impossible is a mission-based company. Our, Our job is to really fix climate change by solving the food system. And you can do this where it's like, what is it? Uh, there's more greenhouse gases in the food system than all transportation combined. It's like 40%, forty percent, 45 percent of all the world's land surfaces used for agriculture. The vast majority, animal agriculture, more than twenty-five percent of the fresh water. We could fractionalize all of those and use a tiny, tiny fraction of those resources if you use plants. And it's like there's so much we can do out of this, and that's like impossible vision from day one. But then it's good to have a vision like that. But it doesn't do any good if you don't create a practical business that you can execute. And so for us we have this, you know, this mission, this huge like star we're shooting for. But we're starting at like, you know, not even like the one foot line, it's like the one millimeter line. And that's what you focus on for the first couple of years. And it's like you're barely even touching that big vision of what you're doing. You keep that in mind, but you have to really move in the executional part of what you're gonna do in the short term. And so for like a like an impossible, like our goal is to do all meat, fish and dairy foods that we consume today. Um and that was like a lot of the talk, a lot of the early research was really broad because it was well learning. But once you start focusing on a product, it's like, okay, you can do this, 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 and this. Uh, but no, we're just going to do this. You got to forget this and not, not say we're never going to do it, but put it on hold. It's just not now. And one of the more powerful statements I think we worked through over time was just not now. And it's not a no, it's just not now. And so then it's all ground beef, ground beef, ground beef. And so when we were in the market, it was only the impossible ground beef from plants product for several years. Now we had the brick and then we had the patties. And so it's a couple different forms from a distribution perspective, but it was really one based product formulation. And we needed to get that right to so then enable. Now what you have is you have sausage, bratwurst, chicken, chicken, brass, chicken nuggets, stuff like this. You had to get that first one, right? Um, before you could really be able to expand the platform. So when you think about your business, think about your vision, it's really good to have that coalescence of the culture around the vision, but then think about what do you have to do in the first year, the first five years? to succeed where that vision can be achieved within whatever your mission is like say 50 years from now so i think that's like an overall one and then from a hard type perspective hard tech is hard <laughs> so be ready <laughs> to be ready for what you're getting into and everything is gonna go wrong and you just be ready for it it's like you're never gonna be ready for everything but just expect things are gonna go wrong and don't take it as like a personal affront when it does go wrong that you messed up it's it's what happens. And then have a solution oriented mindset for going at solving it. And you'll know, have build teams that have that solution oriented teamwork collaboration mindset. It's like some of the best times at Impossible is when we went through some of our crises. If you have a crisis and it's like, okay, this could rip a company apart. Same time, our team was sent to crisis. Ooh, all right, let's dig in. <laughs> it wasn't exactly that way, but not far off. And like everybody had each other's back. And we're all on the same team, but it's super clear we're doing this and we are like managing this and making sure that we're gonna come out of the other end much better than what
1: we Super cool. Uh, and really fun to hear about these early days at Impossible where the focus is on truthless prioritization of what you're gonna pursue as well as culture building and translating the research into commercial outcomes. But now we'd like to talk a little bit about the scale up journey of impossible as well so eight years in you went on to create and run the retail business so what were the considerations on going direct to consumer when previously impossible had mainly focused on the b2b to c channel yeah
2: we had a, a lot of debates on this as you can imagine and so if you look at the us um, uh, like ground beef market and so like back to like a focus perspective versus the whole thing at this point we had the impossible from plants product of us ground beef markets about a 30 to 35 billion dollar market and it's roughly half food service half retail and so you can look at this okay if we get up to say 10 percent of the food service market we have a ways to go yet and so are we better off just focusing and making sure we can get that part of the market or do we add retail which is the other half um, of this and what you kind of get to is there's a consumer cycle a consumer journey and that's i think kind of how we got to sitting to go it's like, yeah, if you go to a restaurant, and you have it, you want to buy it in the store as well and take it home and cook it. And one of the beauties of Impossible's products is they transform as you cook just like meat does. And that's typically not what happens with plant-based products, is like you have it in it it's red and it turns brown as you cook. You can cook it into meatballs, dumplings, burgers, um, like um, like tacos, whatever. And so you can do all this different stuff with it and everybody can put different spices in it. It's like you kind of wanted to give that that experience to the home consumer as well. And so i started thinking about this um now we had to again like pivot the company out of this because we're all food service oriented and so i need to build a retail business and so i had been starting to run international and it's like it became really clear we needed to build retail and so i came like kind of back but some of the international stuff on like a slower path um, to figure out um, what is the best way for us to launch retail got the team put together and it took us about nine months to really get it all together and we launched and it was a it was a fascinating like launch in the standpoint that we invented food service for so long. It's like how many brands have been a food service brand with this much uh, awareness, notoriety, excitement before they entered retail. And so when we entered the retail channel, we launched in about 150 doors, and one of the we want LA was one of the areas we launched, and there was about 28 stores with a customer that we did, and we outsold the entire ground beef category for the first 10 days of the launch in LA. And I remember talking to our head of comms, I was like. We were talking about goals and i can't remember if she came up with it or i did but it was like what would, would it be fun to be able to say that and then uh we talked to talk to the partner and like that's a little wild there's like uh it's like what do you think and like all right well, we can give it a shot and it happened and we had so much support from the customer and the consumer like um pent-up demand was so strong that it enables to do this like really big launch and then from there you have some moments like this where you had so much success Uh, then, the then you can get the kind of retail like dominoes to fall relatively quickly. And we scaled really, really fast, um, after that through the retail channel. And I think for the consumer response was amazing. And if you even go, maybe one of the things on the consumer journey, I, I mentioned before we launched that, you know, sustainability is like number 15 on the consumer purchase like driver list by the, after we launched retail, I think we did it again. And it was number three. And so within a time, and that was really driven by our messaging our like the cons and our team and our marketing and design and all that stuff that we did. And so we made it much more aware that, hey, one of the reasons why, and one of the biggest reasons why we need to change the food system is for sustainability.
0: Cool. There's like uh, a, a, an amazing amount of success in there. And I think this idea of really being able to transform consumer behavior from like sustainability at 15 to three, that's super impressive. Um, and like we asked before, Uh, I would be curious about the lessons that you took away from this. You were so successful. What were the factors that made this so successful? What can other entrepreneurs take away to possibly replicate a success like that and really making a bold move and then coming out stronger on the other side? Um, You know, it's hard to give like a lesson, say do this, because every
2: situation is different. I think that's like part of the entrepreneur journey that makes it so fun, but also so hard is that every company's path should be different. So, you know, look for proxies in the market for what you've seen succeed that's related to your business. But then I also think, what are you trying to accomplish and what can you do creatively? So a lot of times creativity, as long as it's like a focused creativity, you're not trying to do everything, can really give you a lever in the market of doing something different. And then when people see something different, um, it's uh, much more interesting. And so like with Impossible 2, what helped us really do this? Um, well, we had a big mission and a big vision. We're also a bit edgy. And so when you think about this, people want a bit of an edge They say, oh, I want to learn more about that. If it's like kind of too like pristine and like perfect, um, it's not quite as interesting. And so for us, it's like, yeah, we're challenging a big food system, um, out of this. And then we do it impossible. Name is like, why would you call a product of food impossible? That doesn't make any sense. It should be called like green hill farms or something. Um, but for us, it's like, we're, this is like part of our challenge or brand mindset. It kind of fit into the name and it fit the culture of the company too. So all these little pieces do kind of fit together for the mission that we're doing and then the kind of strategy path to get there. Um, like I said, it's going to be different for each company. If you're a B2C company versus a B2B, it's a, you know, a different focus area on how you're going to sell and how you're going to build a company. I do think you know if you're early and you're like low on resources, which the vast majority of probably all startups are uh, comparatively, you have to be able to punch above your weight And so how do you punch above your weight? For us, it was influencers, like the meat influencers of the world. And they helped us really tell the story and then helped us kind of get the media pull um, through this as well so that we could not spend a lot of money in marketing, but get a lot of awareness from it. And then over time, as you scale, you kind of have to change some of the tactics. But early on, it was really, really effective. Your business is the same thing. It's like, look at, oh, how can you find ways where you can use your smallness to your advantage and punch above your weight?
1: I love uh, how you embrace the David versus Goliath narrative and then turn that to your advantage. Um, but another David emerged, which was beyond me. And so curious to hear, as competition crew, how did that affect your go-to-market approach and your sales motion, both on the retail side as well as the food service side?
2: Yeah, I think for us, um, you know, our competition uh, from Impossible even to today is much more the the meat that we're replacing than the plant-based competition. So in a lot of ways, the best thing we can do is build this industry. So if you look at the overall industry size, like animal foods are probably now one and a half, between one and a half and two trillion dollar business. And it's like, there's not one company that's gonna be able to change that over system. And our mission is to transform that system to a whole plant-based society. Um, and there's you know so many benefits behind, um, after that. Now for us, it's like the better they do in a lot of ways from a beyond perspective and some of the competition, the better it is for us. There is different places where you kind of get competitive, of course, and you know certain customers are going to of one product. And the other the way we looked at it is, um, you know, it really starts with the best product. And this is why we did so much research for so long to create a product that really could compete head on head with the animal product. And like several of the impossible products now, like a head on head when blind taste tests are preferred by meat eaters from the meat product from animals. And so it's like you know we are to the point where in blind taste we can win, and that's a starting point. Um, and then that should help convert and drive and continue to grow the industry over time. I think, you know, what happens a lot in venture cycles is once some companies have some success, lots and lots of companies globally pop up. And you saw that. And yeah, they, of, of course, you know, we're all in the the, the general venture slowing down in the last like, you know, year and a half too. And that's definitely the plant-based industry has not been immune to that same time there's there so m- there's a lot of companies getting funded and at the same time is the consumer base is the customer base ready for that many brands and companies and products and the answer clearly is that which always happens is no and so you get this hype cycle and it's like more and more companies come in and you're kind of going through the phase right now where um, the consumer wasn't ready for that much momentum and so I think what you're gonna see is you know it's like an a all- lot of venture right now
0: It's uh, some tough times. And then, once you get the fundamentals right with the base companies, uh, you go back to high growth. Cool. I would want to move slightly to a topic that's maybe more on your individual journey throughout Impossible Foods, because your tenure on LinkedIn says you were there for like 10 years and 11 months or something like that. And that's longer than the average person really spends at a single company here in Silicon Valley. And I would love to understand how you measured success at those different points in your time at Impossible Foods and how you found challenges that kept you excited. To stay for such a long there uh, for such a long time there yeah that's a that's a good question i i've talked to some people like hey that's like three silicon valley lifetimes
2: but then one company is like how do you survive that long <laughs> it's like because it is very different when you go through the different phases and you know i definitely had to recreate myself many times as a leader and you know do different things and change hats and one of the biggest things um, was let stuff go and so, like the first five years, it was really, you know, the vast majority of the business stuff I, you know, it was my job to figure out. Now we were mostly researching, getting ready for commercial, just starting our commercial journey. So it is more focused. But as you scale an executive team, it's like, that was my first business job. And so we needed to bring more executives across this whole thing and it makes a lot of sense. And when we did that, it's like, I had to let go. And it's like, even if I did it before and I liked the way I did it, it's like the new person, I got to help. Right. And it's like, if they do it differently than me, that's not a bad thing. And then for me, it's like to help empower them. And so there was an article by the first round that's uh, I was like letting go of your Legos or something like that. And it's like I've said that to so many people on my teams and like people at Impossible and other companies because like the ethos of it is so true that early days you have to wear all the hats. And then as you like scale, you have to kind of take your hats and get rid of some of them and give them to other people. And then the hats that you continue to own, you get deeper and you get more focused on this. And so I went from like the first five years there and then uh, we hired a COO and we really partnered really well where he would, took like the here and now. So like a year on and in, and I was like a year on in the future. So strategy, partnerships, new channels, new products, new markets. And so, and the two of us just worked like side by side the whole time and it was tons of fun. And as we started having success, I did that for a couple of years, but I really wanted to get more into like operating. And for me, it's a lot of a personal learning journey. I always want to be trying something new and driving something new. And uh, talking to Patty, you look at this and 88% of meat consumption is not in the U.S. And I've been doing a lot of international work with partnerships and investors and things like this for a while. And I'm like, ah, that'd be such a fun opportunity to build businesses outside the U.S. too. And so I took the leap and, you know, started running the international businesses um, pretty early in the company to kind of drive that new challenge. And now I get to hire people in different countries. Never done that before. Figure that out and, you know, work with different cultures. I love learning different cultures with food culture people culture just you know across everything and so um and then through there retail was right in the middle of that too and so i was learning a lot of new stuff through the whole time and then once i got to 11 years i was was living in hong kong for a couple years running the businesses for international i was coming back and i just kind of looked at this and it's been 11 years i've had a great time we're a very different company now and i just had some new ideas and i just looked at what we need to solve in climate and i had some different ideas for what to do from there but it was all very hard, hard choice to say, this time to go. Because when you put that much heart and soul and everything into the business, like impossible, it's still, it's like, I love the company, I want the people there, and products and stuff too. And so I spent about six months kind of wrapping up and then now I've been working on a bunch of new stuff and climate.
1: Awesome. And I know something that you're spending a lot of time on now is advising other founders on figuring out white spaces within their business as you figure out the next phase of uh, your career after Impossible Foods as well. That's something you've been spending time on. Would love to hear your perspective on one, how you find these white spaces and two, eventually how you pursue them and figure if it's the right opportunity for you.
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And as in, since then, I've kind of, like you said, I've been doing a bunch of advising and and like helping people. I'm on a couple boards. And the other thing I was like, I don't think I've told too many of those too many people this is I want to do a lot of writing when I left because I did not want to I would didn't want to forget a lot of the lessons that I learned a lot of the stories we had at impossible that were really fun and ones that were hard and so I've been kind of like writing in the background for a while and so I have this like startup operational guide of like you know how do you do this how do you do this and it's like learnings and it's all more like kind of um, guidance because every company is different like I said there's a way for me to kind of download some of the things that as I start building up the companies and help other founders out I can send them like here's how here's how we built demand teams in some different ways. So here's how you think about hiring specialists versus athletes, mercenaries and missionaries and like, you know, different things like this and how you can like build teams at different stages. Um, and then from a white space, it's a lot of networking, a lot of talking with people. And so I knew I wanted to do something more in climate and I had some different ideas. And if you look at like global greenhouse gases and global warming in general, you have three main gases and a bunch of trace gases that drive the warming effect. You have CO2, which everyone talks about, but as like you know methane and nitrous oxide and others are some real big issues too, and there's not much focus. And so that was one of my kind of inspirations that kind of started me down the journey of uh, working on my next thing. I was like I think there's some areas that we can do more there and have a bigger impact in kind of stabilizing the climate faster and some of these things like methane. And so I took off and started sitting in and I ended up kind of grouping climate into three buckets. And you have decarbonization and driving industries to in net zero. It's impossible. Quote Genera, the solar company was that. and you know ninety five, probably closer to ninety nine percent of the investment and the effort goes into decarbonization and transitioning these industries. Now, the reality and the sad reality is, last year is our highest emissions year we've ever had. And if you look at the reports, we need to be down in emissions forty percent by twenty thirty to stand at one point five Celsius rise globally, and we're still going up. And so it's like, we have two other areas in climate that haven't been as much focused so far that we need to start accelerating on one is adaptation, resilience, and so climate is changing. How do we manage it to reduce impact on people's societies and the environment? Uh, one of the companies I'm on a board of now it's called inner and, uh, Shelly I've known for a long time, the founder, um, and she's done a great job of building a team and a technology that, that she teaches plants, how to communicate with growers. And so what happens when a plants are under stress, they fight the stress. And so what they do is they get the plant to express a phosphorescent protein, a leaf, when it gets attacked by a stressor. So a fungus, a pest, low nitrogen, and you can read that signal from satellites. So now if you know what's going on, where it's going on, when it's going on in the field, you can manage the crop much better, especially as the stressors change with climate change. Technologies like that are going to be really important so they can feed the world efficiently and with good food. And so stuff like that so you have a whole bucket on adaptation resilience and there's a lot of opportunity there hard business models and a lot of this stuff but really important mm-hmm. and then the third one which i'm doing a lot of work on is we've done all this negative engineering to the world i'm an engineer by heart so i like to always cutting that type of language it's like how do we undo that negative engineering with positive engineering in some ways because like the reality is we do engineer a lot of the lot of our world already and so like how do you pull methane co2 nitrous oxide emissions out of the atmosphere out of systems And start balancing the climate, for and get it back to you know where we were before. So we have a more stable environment. How do you fix degraded lands and broken waterways, things like that? And so, I think we need a lot more solutions to areas than that. And there's tons of opportunity. And so I think about white spaces. Think about what you know. And then the way I ended up doing, it, I talked to tons of people. I made like my climate change fact sheet. Where I started doing research and making like links to all the stuff. So it's like I don't know, ten page long thing of like random facts. Like what does this mean? I was like, I don't know. I should go look that up or talk to somebody about it.
0: Yeah, I think this idea of like white spaces will be for the next generation of entrepreneurs coming in really, really interesting. Everyone's trying to find them. Um, And I think besides finding a space that you want to be in, I think you want to equip yourself with the right mindset, with the right tools, et cetera. And I'd love to end the podcast on the question of kind of if you have a certain mantra of how you approach your career or a certain guideline that you have or some advice that you would give to yourself as you were coming out of Stanford 10 years ago for people who are now entering climate, what would you... Want to say to them, what should they do? How should they think about their career and their life? You know, a good
2: mantra I've always lived by is put your place, put yourself in places to get lucky. And so I look at my career and kind of where I've gone to is, like I said, I went to Stanford um, for grad school. I got very lucky that I got in. I always felt that way. And I think I'm going to make the most out of this opportunity and, and get as much out of it as I possibly can. But I also went there to not do food and heck. And so, and how do I end up at Impossible Foods? I got lucky. I you know, talked to somebody who was talking to Pat Brown on this idea. and like, you know This fits my background really well. I think the two of you will work really well together. And it ended up being a great spot. How did I get there? I put myself out there and I talked to tons of people and I built a network and said what I wanted to focus on, what my personal motivations were. And people then essentially, especially as a student, um, people want to help. like People love to help other people, especially if you ask. You don't even a lot of times need to ask. Just put yourself out there and people will say, oh, I can connect you with this person. You should talk with them. And so it's like I've been a very big uh, proponent. One of my uh, brother in laws, he'd always say, like we'd, you know, like I'd be in college, I'd go visit we them. They were living in Atlanta at that time. I was like, I'll cover this dinner. He's like, No, no, we got it. Just pay it forward. And I was like, and I always like that too. It's like you know, pay it forward. There's a lot of the advising and mentoring I do now, it's like, it's like you're good people working on good things. It's like I had so much advice and so much help along my journey. Um, I, I feel really kind of privileged and lucky that I. And so as a person in this journey is like put yourself in places to get that type of like kind of feedback and support. And I think it's going to help you move a lot faster. And we do get lucky. Jump on
0: it. If that's not a great way to end this podcast, I don't know what is. Uh, I think we've been very lucky to have you share all your advice and your lessons. I definitely feel really inspired by this episode and hope that those who are listening will do the same. Thank you so much for taking the time, Nick. This has been a true pleasure. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Join us next time as we speak to another game-changing entrepreneur, innovator, or investor who is working to get us down to zero.